0: Good morning. May it please the court, Rachel Bond, representing the appellant, Mohammed Jama, The the specific intent to be indecent or lewd is an essential element of the crime of indecent exposure, including when the conduct arises under the provision in the statute that prohibits open or gross lewdness, lascivious behavior, or other public indecency. That has been this court's holding in prior cases, and that should be reaffirmed today. From that specific intent, there are two errors that are present in this case. Number one, the district court should have given the voluntary intoxication defense uh, instruction to the jury. And number two, the district court should have instructed the jury on that specific intent, the deliberate intent to be lewd or indecent. Those as errors- to the,
1: counsel, as to the specific uh, intent issue, what about the absence of any of the traditional language that the legislature uses to indicate specific intent?
0: Uh, Your Honor, it doesn't matter in this case for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, as I talked about in the brief under the or- Orcello case, it is clear that the presence of those magic words in 609.02 is not required in order to find a specific intent. So that that is not essential. That is particularly so in this case because we have a statute that predates the enactment of the criminal code in 1963. So it's no surprise to me particularly that the legislature didn't use those words, because that listing of words in 609.02 didn't exist yet at the time of the statute in Peary, at least. Um, So I think those those are helpful tools in deciding whether the legislature intended to have a specific intent. The absence of that language in this case doesn't matter. Uh, And instead, we can look to the common law, which this court has said is an appropriate guide in determining specific and general intent, and we can look to the holdings in Peary and Stevenson.
2: Council, um, aren't Peary and Stevenson a little bit different in that it seems to be focused on public versus private rather than intent?
0: Uh, no, I would disagree with that. the wording of your question. I agree that factually what is going on in Peary and Stevenson is in Peary for sure it's an exposure case. And Peary is different factually in that it happens inside the defendant's apartment. Um, Stevenson, as we know, and I think this is very, very important to the outcome of this case, Stevenson is also a case that arises under not just the intentional exposure, um, but the provision that we have here, the lewd and lascivious behavior, which will be my shorthand way of referring to that. Um, The holding in Peary and then in Stevenson, that language is quite broad. It is not as far as the offense of indecent exposure to prevail in, an, in a prosecution for indecent exposure. The state must prove the deliberate intent to be indecent or lewd. And then the question is, how do we apply that intent, that specific intent, in a circumstance where the conduct is either inside an apartment, as in as in Peary, or inside a car, as in Stevenson? And the location, I think this is somewhat th- a place where the state and I disagree on this case. The significance of the location matters because it might make the inference of the required intent easier or harder to make. So in Peary, because the conduct was occurring inside the apartment, we really want something more, the court said. We need something more because we have a concern that that is inside uh, and in someone's house. We're going to require something more in order to make that required inference of an intent. And that was present. Right, or it was not present in peri. in a different case it certainly might be right but if the what, dif-
3: what is the consequence so i mean for specific intent it needs you know to have a particular outcome or result so what is the particular result that has to be intended under the under the statute
0: well, the particular result, and again, that's one way of framing specific intent, right? It could be requiring to specific result or intent, knowing that your conduct violates, intending to violate the law. There's a couple ways to frame that, but I, I think the, specific, the required intent is the intent to be lewd. Uh,
3: that's. But what what is what would a juror do with that?
0: Well, what would a juror do with any of the language in this well, statute without an intent? And I think part. No, but of what the, is,
3: what does it mean? What, how would a juror know whether someone is being lewd or not?
0: Well, the juror would look, as as we have in Peary and Stevenson, right? The juror would look at what the act is. So it could be an act of exposure. It could be an act of masturbation. It could be an act of dancing. It could be any kinds of acts. And then look at the circumstances under which that act happens. Does it happen in private or public? Does it happen in a place where we can reasonably assume that the defendant wanted to be seen? Is, the defendant is, that, is pay- that
3: what the thing is, that... You have to prove there's an intent to be seen.
0: No, that's not the intent. Um, the intent I am asking for is what the court, this court said in Peary Stevenson, which is a deliberate intent to be lewd.
3: But how does that help a juror? That's my problem. I mean, the word lewd, who knows what that means? There has to be something else around that. And I'm asking what you think are the things that define what, I guess it's how do you define lewd?
0: Yes, I think that is the question. And I mean, if that's the court's concern, then I would say we then we have to have a specific intent because otherwise all we're left with is something that says lewd exposure or gross lewdness. And that doesn't provide any more guidance to the jury either.
3: I I don't disagree. I'm just I'm just trying to get at what you think that the word lewd should be defined as, because it seems like we have to get there to resolve the case, I suppose, either way, but in your favor?
0: I, you know, I, I don't know if to resolve the case in my favor, the court needs to come up with a definition of lewd. I mean, part of what's hard, a little bit about some of these concepts, there is this, this court, this isn't in my brief, but I found it preparing for the argument, there's a case from the 1970s that was a TPR case. And that is the only case I have found where the court has actually said what lewd and lascivious mean and somewhat unhelpfully, respectfully, they define the words by reference to each other. So lewd, according to this TPR case, means lustful or libidinous or unchaste. Lascivious means lewd. Uh, and so I think those definitions are a little bit hard to pin down. It is one, those, the, the sort of vagueness of the terms and the fact that the conduct that we're talking about here, unlike, say, a harm assault, where we have an identifiable injury on a victim, and that is that is a good way to gauge the conduct, engage the intent. We don't have that here, and I think when when we don't have that, and when we have behavior that is not always criminal, right? It, merely exposing your private part is not always criminal in every circumstance. Masturbation is not always criminal in every circumstance. And when we don't, when we have behavior that one of the old cases that Peary, uh relies on talks about when we have conduct that is otherwise indifferent but now we're going to make it criminal and we're going to make it criminal well
1: the, in- the the problem that i have with your description here is that this case this case doesn't look anything like peary i mean you've you've distinguished you've noted the differences it was a conduct occurring in a dormitory or an apartment that's not what happened here I mean, we had we had exposure occurring um, in a public place um, uh, to uh, people and families and children. I mean, it's it, it, this is the classic example of I don't know whether you call it disorderly conduct or uh, lewd or lascivious behavior. Uh, this is something very different than what we were looking at in Stevenson and.
0: I agree, but the consequence of that is not to say that the intent is not required. The consequence of the factual difference in this case means the intent is a relatively easy inference to make. Uh, right? We don't need to look very hard in this case, arguably, uh, because the conduct did occur in public, did occur in the presence of others, did, was accompanied by the kinds of facts that Pe- Perry and Stevenson talk about as far as behavior and movements and all those things that are intended to call attention to the acts. And so I agree this case is factually different in that it occurs in a different location. But again, there is nothing in Perry and Stevenson that says if the act occurs in a public location or in the presence of others, there's no intent required. What it means is, again, that that intent is easier to make in a factual scenario like the one present here. But there simply is nothing in Peary or Stevenson, which is, again, more relevant because we're dealing there with a conviction that does arise under this uh, lewd and lascivious behavior provision. There's nothing that says, this intent only applies in a paren 1 uh, conviction, or this intent is only required to be proven if it occurs in a private place or a place where others might not be present. So I think the, the cases, while being factually distinguishable, their holdings and their principles are squarely on point. I don't see any basis to say we're going to p- require that deliberate intent to be lewd in one kind of a case, but not in another kind of a case, particularly where the conduct we've got here and the wording of the statute is, I think, a little bit hard for a fact finder to grapple with, and frankly, for the average citizen maybe to understand what is criminal and what is not. Uh, and so that is. I think those concerns of, of notice and is the citizen, especially when we're talking about behavior that is sometimes pu- perfectly lawful, do we know when that behavior is going to cross the line into illegal conduct? And one of the ways we can ensure that innocent people and innocent behavior are not being swept up into this statute is to require that the defendant acted with the deliberate intent to be lewd. And the common law, when we look to the common law in this case, really, I mean, this offense comes is from the common law. There's common law principles. It really, I think the offense does sort of have in mind this notion that when we are dealing with these issues of morality and sexuality and privacy and modesty, we do care about whether there is sort of an intent that it be perceived by the public. Because what the offense is getting at is We don't want offensive or lewd or lascivious conduct being imposed in an offensive matter on someone else.
4: Counsel, I have in front of me, um, Perry, and the reference to this old case from New York uh, from 1849. But the the sentence in front of the, the citation and the quotation to the old case refers to the requirement that the act be intended to be witnessed. Isn't that the intent that Perry requires the intent to be witnessed?
0: Well, I, 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 I know I agree that sentence is there. you know that that's not what finally Perry or Stevenson articulates as to the choir, re, in, the required intent.
4: Well, um, but the, the Perry says the display must be so public and open that it must be reasonably presumed that it was intended to be witnessed. This rule, referring to intended to be witnessed, is well expressed in the 1849 case, and then they quote the 1849 case. Mm-hmm. Isn't so? Isn't the intent
0: that well, the I statement
4: has shown that that it's not inadvertent, that it's intended to be witnessed by someone?
0: Well, I, you know, I, I guess my answer would be is if the court is in, you know, now going to characterize the required intent as intent to be witnessed, that still seems to me to be a specific intent. Um, that still seems to me to be a result, right? I, I am intending that my conduct be witnessed. I am t- intending the result that it be witnessed. So, But in Stevenson, it actually says likely to be observed, and that seems to
2: me to go away from the argument that you just made.
0: Well, I, I guess I don't, you know, my position, again, is that what the case law says is that in order to sustain a conviction of this offense, there has to be a deliberate intent to be lewd or indecent. I read the cases as saying one way that we can determine that intent is whether the defendant intended it to be witnessed. I think a variant on that, maybe the answer is, is you know, how do we know? how do we know he intended it to be witnessed if it's reasonably probable that it could be witnessed or you know something for me it, all of those formulations is a way to get at a specific intent requirement and you know if it's a general intent statute i think we all you know that is a that is a, all that then we're talking about is intentionally making the bodily movements that constitute the crime and if all there was was a general intent requirement in the statute I don't think Perry and Stevenson would be, have been written the way they were. Then all we need is an intentional act—the act—without any kind of intent to be lewd, intent to be witnessed, you know, any of those things.
3: So, what, if, what was the offer of proof that um, in the voluntary intoxication that um, would explain why he didn't intend to be witnessed?
0: the offer
3: is what, what information is in the record that shows that that would undermine um, his intent I mean he's in public right so is the question whether he was so intoxicated that he didn't even understand he was in public and is if that's the case what proof is there in the record
0: well I um- I think the, you know, the, the offer of proof at the time the voluntary intoxication instruction was requested primarily revolved around what the state's evidence was. And that's that there were all these observable signs of intoxication and that's documented by every single witness and all. So I, I think the question, and maybe I'm not precisely understanding what you're asking. I'm but trying I,
3: to get at the third prong of the voluntary intoxication test.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's helpful. <laughs> um, I, you know, the, so the state's argument is that then there, the the defendant didn't offer intoxication as a justification for his actions. Um, I I don't I don't agree with that at all. Um, and part of the part of the analysis on that question is voluntary intoxication was noticed. Um, there is copious evidence in this case, again by every witness, that the defendant was under the effect of an intoxicating substance and therefore was not acting in a coherent and controlled manner um, that is enough of a proffer uh, and it's enough to meet that burden under prong 3 um, so we can you know we can say what is the deli- what is the specific intent that is required and that's I for me that's a bit of a separate question whether it's intent to be witnessed or intent to be lewd but that's a separate question from, if the statute requires a specific intent, right? If we need to read into this based on the case law, based on the common law, based on the kind of conduct that is listed in the statute, if we're going to read in a deliberate intent to be lewd or a specific intent, you know, then what that triggers is a voluntary intoxication instruction. And on that third prong of whether the defendant has met, is entitled to the instruction, um, again, that is about holding out whether intoxication is the reason for your action. Um, and th- that, I think, clearly is is present in this case. Um, as to the, I don't know if the court, I can address a little bit the second prong of that voluntary intoxication um, three-pronged test as well, assuming that we have a specific intent crime. Um, At the second stage, it is whether, by a preponderance of the evidence viewed in the light most favorable to the defendant, uh, a jury could find that the defendant, in fact, was intoxicated. Um, I think, again, that the the evidence in this case is is unusually clear uh, as far as what was going on and all of the state's witnesses again, talked about this This person is walking up and he's stumbling and he's slumping and he's incoherent and he's not responsive and everyone assumed, everyone described him as being drunk or being on drugs or being under the influence of something.
2: Counsel, do you agree that we only get there if we agree with you and find that this is a specific intent crime?
0: I do under this course case law. yes. Um, I mean I noted in my brief that I think that the Fleck uh, holding is not entirely consistent with the wording of the voluntary intoxication statute, but um, it, you know but I, I recognize that that's the law that we're under and that currently in the Fleck world the first requirement of getting a voluntary intoxication st- instruction is that the crime be one of specific intent. Uh, so that and I think I've clearly met that. Uh, for all the reasons we've we've talked about, um, it, you know, as to the harmlessness, uh, again, this assuming that this is a specific intent crime, uh, that the other prongs of the voluntary intoxication requirement are met, um, I think it is really worth noting. Again, a very unusual part about the case is that we have some concrete evidence that intent and what was in the defendant's mind uh, was really a big, a big part of, for the jury. They wanted to rewatch the video, but then they had these two questions about the word willful. Um, and that, to me, clearly shows that the jury was struggling with and trying to figure out exactly what the defendant intended in this case. Uh, and so that, that helps quite a bit, I think, the harmless error question. Um, and shows that the intent this case really was all about, whether, you know, what did he intend? Was he capable of forming the intent? Or was he so under the influence of an intoxicating substance that he was not able to form that deliberate intent to be lewd? So I think there's no question that we can show that the error was prejudicial here, uh, and that the district court erred in not giving that voluntary intoxication instruction. Um, The second error I'll just briefly touch on is then the the second instructional error, uh, which is that assuming that the statute requires a specific intent, uh, a deliberate intent to be indecent or lewd, um, then that is under the wording of Peary and Stevenson, that is an essential element. That is not just a definition, that is not just a sufficiency of the evidence standard, that is an essential element that the state must prove. And if that's the case, then the jury has to be instructed on that element. So the district court here committed plain error by not specifically telling the jury that that intent was present, not just under, so it's, you know, it's interesting when you look at the jig, the jig has that deliberate intent to be indecent or lewd only under the first provision, uh, the lewd exposure. Um, And that's wrong, that under Peary, that deliberate intent to be indecent or lewd should also be present at least under that third provision that we're under here, the lewd or lascivious behavior. So that's an essential element. The jury should have been instructed on it, and it affected the defendant's substantial rights for many of the same reasons that the harm, the harm question that we talked about. Um, And finally, I guess I'll touch on the the fourth prong, Um, both the third and the fourth prongs of the jury instruction, the plain error question. Really, we rely pretty heavily on Watkins. I think that's a very useful guide for the court, both as far as the impact on substantial rights, uh, the fact that this was something that the defendant contested, and the fact that it went to the fairness and integrity of the proceedings. Uh, Unless the court has further questions, um, I will rely on the briefs for the rest, but I do ask that the court follow the very clear holdings in Peary and Stevenson, find that this indecent exposure statute does require the deliberate intent to be lewd or indecent, uh, and reverse and remand for a new trial. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Saunders.
5: May it please the court, I'm Jennifer Saunders and I represent respondent state of Minnesota in this matter. In this matter, both the trial court and the court of appeals correctly ruled that the offense of indecent exposure pursuant to Minnesota statute 617.23 subdivision 13 is a general intent crime. The statutory language and case law read in context do not create a specific intent element for this offense. Additionally, appellant was not entitled to involuntary intoxication instruction because in addition to this not being a general intent crime, in in addition to this being a general intent crime, the evidence appellant presented did not support voluntary intoxication in this case.
6: When you look at the language of Peary and Stevenson. Counsel, if I may, maybe you just answered one of my questions. I was curious to know if we disagree with you and find that this is a specific intent crime, it does seem to me the rest of the state's case sort of falls away, but I'm hearing you say maybe that's not that's not true uh, because I tend to tend to agree with Ms. Bond that if this is a specific intent crime, not getting that he was entitled to uh, a voluntary intoxication uh, instruction, he didn't get that. To me, that's plain error, and boy, it's hard to say it was harmless in this instance, particularly when you look at what the jury was asking about and. So, but but tell me why why you would disagree on that?
5: Well, first of all, the voluntary intoxication uh, defense was not applicable because that is not the evidence that was proffered by appellant. Uh, what appellant proffered was an involuntary intoxication uh, situation. Factually, he denied vol- uh,
6: voluntarily uh, ingesting any intoxicants whatsoever. Is there a case though that where we've drawn where we've drawn that distinction? There is not between voluntary and involuntary the
5: statute Uh, the stat this is a statutory defense Does that make sense because wouldn't
2: if, if we divided the line that finally would that not require the defendant to have to testify?
5: Well, uh, if you go back to the Wilson case, uh, the uh, situation there is that there were other people who were able to testify that the individual uh, was drinking, appeared intoxicated. Um, and in this case, the, uh, the appellant did not, he affirmatively denied in, in voluntarily ingesting any intoxicants. And the statute itself does say voluntary intoxication. But more importantly, when you look at the distinction between the voluntary and the involuntary, you can see very clearly that his proffer in this case was for an involuntary intoxication defense. He claims he would slip something speculatively, uh, without his knowledge, that based on that, he had no idea what he was doing. Involuntary intoxication, if you, and if you look at Altimus, it gives a, a very good distinction between the two. Voluntary, involuntary intoxication is essentially a uh, mental... Uh, is a defense by reason of uh, mental illness. And it's a total defense, and it does talk about the fact that you have no idea what you're doing. And that is what factually appellant proffered in this case. He did not proffer that he was so intoxicated he couldn't uh, form specific intent. He proffered he was so intoxicated he had absolutely no intent whatsoever, that his acts were not even volitional. So when you look at not only the two different defenses and you look at the factual proffer in this case, it also leads, as uh, Justice uh, Hudson asked, into the harmless error portion of it. Even if you had a situation where you believe this was a specific intent crime, even if you thought he met the prongs of voluntary intoxication under the statute and under Wilson, ultimately it doesn't matter because what he was arguing was not that he lacked that deliberate intent to be
7: lewd, but he had absolutely no idea what he was doing whatsoever. And when you look at the facts of this case- And counsel, that that was not just a proffer, he actually testified to that, didn't he?
5: He did in fact testify to that. And basically he agreed um, through counsel and through his own testimony, uh, to the, that he engaged in this conduct, that it was open, that it was in public, that it was in front of these uh, children, but he basically stated he had no recollection of it. And so the full brunt of his argument and his uh, proffer of facts to support that argument were that he had this was not a volitional act. It had nothing to do with general intent versus specific, specific intent. He was saying he did not intentionally engage in this behavior. And the uh, the cases that are so heavily relied upon um, for the specific intent
2: portion of it. Uh, period. Go back. You said um, that he didn't intentionally engage in this behavior. Do you mean that he did not re- recall engaging in this behavior? Period.
5: Correct. And thank you for that mm-hmm. distinction. He stated that in his testimony, and as was argued by his counsel, that he did not recall engaging in any of this behavior and woke up in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a difference, obviously, between knowing what you're doing and recalling what you're doing. Uh, but he's, his basic uh, argument uh, and, and factual support to that or that he did not know what he was doing. He had no recollection of the events uh, leading up to this act that he admits, because quite frankly, there's video evidence of it, that he engaged in. And no one disputed at the trial level that this behavior was lewd uh, or that it didn't meet the criteria of the statute. The sole uh, basis for his defense, which he got to fully present, to uh, the jury, was that uh, he was unknowingly and unwittingly uh, given something. He doesn't know what it was, but that somehow, because of that, he has no recollection of what happened.
7: Counsel, uh, if the state had proceeded under Clause 1, would you have to have shown a different level of intent?
5: No, this is still a general intent crime, regardless of Clause 1 or Clause 2. However, we did uh, we did proceed under one Three. that is how the jury was instructed, and that is uh, how we are proceeding. And appellant uh, concurs uh, in his brief that we're talking about 1-3, not 1-1. One one. So in the Peary and Stevenson cases, uh, as your, your honors have pointed out, there is language that indicates that it is not quite as broad as appellant argues. First of all, um, in addition to the language preceding the Miller case, Uh, The case states that the exposure at issue under an, an indecent exposure crime. The exposure becomes indecent only when he indulges in such practices at a time and place where as a reasonable person he knows or ought to know his act is open to the observation of others and when the the language that appellant uh, depends upon states that the offense of indecent exposure can be established in order for it to be established the misconduct complained of was committed with a deliberate intent Intent to be indecent or lewd is immediately followed by the sentence ordinary acts or conduct involving exposure of the person as a result of carelessness or thoughtlessness do not in themselves establish the offense of indecent exposure. And factually, that was the issue in Peary. In Peary, the issue was you have an individual who, as several of you have pointed out, was engaged in behavior that, uh, depending on the circumstances, was did not violate the statute. He was changing in his dormitory room. And uh, the question was, was he doing it in such a way and under such circumstances that it could be seen? That was the issue in Perry and Stevenson. What Perry and Stevenson set up is the fact that that one of the elements of this offense is that it'd either be in public or it be somewhere where others are present. And as has been pointed out, the behavior that the person engages in, it's those circumstances that determine if it's violative of the statute.
4: Why in Piri did we use the word intent? Was it being used too loosely? Um, How do you interpret the meaning of the word intent to be, for example, intent to be witnessed in the Piri case, if not referring to some form of specific intent?
5: Well, I look at it, Your Honor, based on the uh, context of the case itself and based on the context of the other language surrounding it. And it's very clear from the the context of the full context of that case that the indecent exposure uh, is required to be somewhere either public or where others are present. And later on in the decision, uh, it does state clearly the words indecent exposure clearly imply that the act is either in the actual presence and sight of others or is in such a place under such circumstances that the exhibition is liable to
4: be seen. So by is audit. it just an inartful way of describing that the conduct was in the open? or it not in the open?
5: From the full context of the, the holding, Your Honor, it does seem that it is expressing that the conduct needs to be in the open because the issue in Peary was not with the conduct itself. Uh, there was no lewd acts um, that were alleged. It was simply that this individual was changing and at some point during his process of getting ready for his shower, he was nude and his blinds were open. Uh, so the, the full context of the decision seems very clearly geared towards describing a situation where, if this act is not in public or meant to be seen, it's not lewd. And that's what you get to with the period. So, that's, in cases.
3: I think that's the trick, though, where you just said it was not meant to be seen. Right. And that seems to me to imply when it's not in public, at least there is an intent when you're taking that act that it be seen, so why is that not specific intent? It may be a very limited form of specific intent, mm. but why is that not a specific intent?
5: Because the specific intent, uh, getting back to the statutory language, the specific intent deals with uh, a particular result. And in this case, we're talking about an element that needs to be met that's very clearly stated in the statute of it being in public or in the presence of others. And if you're doing this behavior in the privacy of your own home, then you cannot assume that that element has been met. What you need is to describe circumstances that indicate either it's in public and there are people around to see it, or you are um, doing such actions as they describe in Peary, such as gestures, um, things to kind of draw attention, to indicate that even if it's not in a public place, uh, that it, there are others present and you um, you are doing it in such circumstances that the others present will see your act.
7: What Peary,
3: That they want you to see that happening.
5: Right, but Peary also is very clearly uh, describing a situation where they, uh, the you are not in violation of the statute if you are acting uh, unwittingly. So you are, and that was the factual situation in Peary. He was not. He was in his own. Well, private isn't, isn't arms
3: wittingly it. intent?
5: Unwittingly means volitional, non-volitional. It's it's talking about whether it's accidental. Uh, and in this case, uh, clearly, when you look at the facts of this case, that's not where we're at. But in the Peary case, the decision point came to was he accidentally doing this or was he engaged in an intentional act? There is some intentionality, of course, in the statute. There has to be. It's a criminal statute. So,
4: counsel, let's take this hypothetical. Somebody sleeps in the nude and is sleepwalking and walks out the door and encounters people. Um, Is that person um, liable for the crime of... Um, open or gross lewdness or lascivious behavior or public indecency under subdivision 113? 113, excuse me.
5: Well, and and again, in that situation, you're dealing with whether or not it's a volitional act, and that's the mens rea to, to, uh, the basic general intent, mens rea, to commit the offense. There has to be a Would that
7: um, come from the engages language of the statute? Is that where the volitional... Um, determination comes from to use in, in Justice Little Hog's hypothetical.
5: In, in section 1-3, subdivision 1-3, yeah. the individual still has to engage in volitional behavior, just like you can't be prosecuted for assaulting someone if you um, accidentally fall on top of them. We're talking about uh, basic uh, general intent mens rea, of course, exists in this case. And appellant is not arguing that there was any error with regard to uh, the general intent or, or uh, a criminal intent mens rea But just so
4: I understand, is the sleepwalker guilty or not guilty?
5: Well, in that case, the argument would be, and again, it's it's going to depend on I'm not on asking what the
4: argument is. I'm asking under your interpretation of the statute, is the sleepwalker guilty or not guilty?
5: It would not be a volitional act because they're unconscious, so they, they probably would be found not guilty. But again, that may also depend on the, an affirmative defense being raised, possibly um, a mental defect offense. Uh, and in the current case, um, what you have is uh, a statute that not only lacks the particular language. You have uh, two decisions in the Peary and Stevenson case cases that are very narrowly construed to deal with a particular situation that's very far from the factual um, situation in our case. And additionally, if you if you follow appellant's uh, request and interpretation of the law, you end up with an absurd result. You end up with. Uh, the state having to prove that an individual in public or uh, others were present committed a lewd act with the intent to be lewd uh and you know that's really when you look at the two court of appeals decisions that we cited uh and Asowski, that's what they're getting at
3: unless the word lewd means you are doing it so other people see it i mean that concept could be captured in the word lewd so you don't have to be lewd with an intent to be lewd lewd itself could mean you have to do this behavior where someone else can see it and with that intent
5: it's not how the the statute is structured Uh, the engaging you have first of all that the act in and of itself recognizing that that several of the acts that fall under the statute depending on the circumstances of where and when and how they're committed could be lewd or not lewd the initial element is that it be somewhere public or where, where others are present then you get to the behavior. And so the only decision the jury has to make in this case is, was this in a location that was public or others are present? And was the did the individual engage in an act that was lewd or lascivious or indecent? Uh, so when you look at the structure of the statute, it does separate uh, those out, because it does recognize that there are various types of behavior we're talking about, but the critical point um, under the making it a violation of statute is the circumstances under which it is committed, which do include whether or not it's in public.
3: But uh, but how does the, but but doesn't your argument fall under what Justice Lihug's hypothetical said that they were in this sleepwalker is in public and in the presence of other people, so that element is satisfied. Nonetheless, uh, my sense is that person would and I think you said would not be guilty. So why is that? Because the behavior is not lewd, and if that's the case, what does it mean that behavior is lewd?
5: Well, it would be because, uh, as I as I uh, alluded to earlier, we're still talking about a general intent crime. We're still talking about having a criminal mens rea, and so it's and that's why I hesitated in answering the question because it's not so much about the statute as it is about the person's um, uh, mental state, and there are ways to address that through um, uh, an involuntary intoxication defense through um, an other mental illness um, type defense. And in this case, again, this would be a situation where it would likely be an affirmative defense, uh, where the individual would have to affirmatively say that I had no um, uh, concept of what I was doing. I had no responsibility. I had no mens rea whatsoever because uh, I was asleep.
6: And But, uh, counsel, my my question with that is then, why help me see the distinction here from how you have uh, described appellant's testimony he said i don't recall it at all right so how is that fun- how is that different what's the principal distinction between that and justice little Hogg's sleepwalker
5: Well, uh, again, in both situations, you're talking about a particular factual scenario that would need to be put before the jury, and the jury would need to determine if it was credible. That factual scenario was put before this jury, and it was the only basically argument factually in the case. Uh, And when appellant argues that uh, the jury was clearly thinking about the uh, intentfulness, the willfulness of the act, of course they were. That was the only question they were asked to answer. Uh, But what it does is it it does present that issue to the jury, and then the jury needs to determine if that is a credible uh, argument or if that's a credible set of facts. And counsel here did not have
2: somebody who was. um, uh, Even if you say he didn't know what he was doing, I mean, there was, he was gyrating, there was an approach to, I think, a... Uh, this individual approached one of the infants, I think that was in this, this group of individuals. Um, so it was more than just merely standing there with his genitals hanging out.
5: Correct, he didn't stumble into the yard and happened to have his penis exposed. It's clear from the evidence that he approached this family, that he removed his penis from his pants, that he uh, approached the children in the group, uh, that he began to gyrate, he began to dance, he was physically escorted from the area and returned and continued to engage in this behavior intentional behavior, intentional lewd behavior until the police arrived. And that is when the consciousness of guilt made him uh, basically cover himself, put his penis away, and and stop engaging in that behavior. So I don't want your honors to think that we're, uh, um, that were conceding obviously that he had no idea what he was doing. My point is that that was his version of the events of that day. And he argued that he had no criminal mens rea whatsoever. The jury didn't
4: buy it. it. Is a question of whether he was entitled to an involuntary intoxication instruction before us today? I'm sorry. Is the question of whether he was entitled to an involuntary intoxication instruction before us today?
5: It is not, Your Honor. The way the error is structured in this case was the lack of the voluntary intoxication and then the um, uh, the sua sponte uh, jury instruction regarding adding a specific intent element to the offense. Uh, so, when I do want to uh, touch briefly on harmless error as well, um, as appellant argued that uh, there was, it was not harmless error in this case, but and I've touched upon some of these points already, but one of the big issues here is that the voluntary intoxication instruction or the other uh Jury instruction that appellant cites as error would have made no difference whatsoever in the outcome of this case. We are not dealing with an individual who is stating that um, yes, I, I engaged in um, this behavior, and I recall I was in, uh, engaged. This was intentional behavior. Uh, I had the general mens rea ch- and volitional. Um, um, actions in this case that would meet that that basic uh, criminal intent criteria, but I didn't I didn't have a specific intent in mind that deliberate intent to be lewd that appellant is alleging. That's not the situation in this case. What appellant uh, is alleged in it, first of all, is that he had no intent whatsoever, but more importantly when you look at the the actual actions that he engaged in, uh, and there's uh, not only testimonial evidence but video evidence Evidence of it, clearly, this this uh, behavior had no other intent other than to be lewd. Uh, he is walking up to a family celebrating the Fourth of July. There are children present. He removes his penis from his pants. He begins to dance. He begins to gyrate. He refuses to leave. He refuses to stop. He was acting with, if there was specific intent in this case, clearly with that deliberate intent to be lewd. So the. Even if we get past all of the specific intent, even if we get through all of the prongs of voluntary intoxication, and even if we get through plain error, what we um, are left with is that there is no uh, difference in the outcome of this case uh, if appellant was getting all of the jury instructions that they are requesting in this case. And I do want to touch briefly upon the second error that was- Council, do you agree with the opposing
2: counsel that if we um, agree with you and find that it's a general intent crime that we need not go
5: further? Correct. Uh, Both of the errors assigned in this case are based on the presumption that uh, this was a specific intent crime. That's the only way you get to voluntary intoxication, and the other error that is cited by appellant is that the uh, court failed uh, sua sponte to add an intent element uh, to this crime and so instruct the jury. So if we uh, decide that this is a general intent crime, uh, that is basically where appellant's case uh, stops. The crime of indecent exposure under Minnesota Statute 617.23, subdivision 13 is a general intent crime. Appellant was not entitled to a voluntary intoxication for that reason and because the evidence did not support it. Appellant was not entitled to a sua sponte jury instruction, adding an intent element because the law does not require it. And finally, the evidence of his guilt is overwhelming, and we respectfully request that his conviction
6: Counsel, before you take your seat, just one question. Um, if we agree with you, do you think we need to say anything about Peary and Stevenson, uh, particularly the language in both about uh, requiring a deliberate intent to be to be lewd?
5: Well, appellant states that uh, our position would ask you to upend Peary and Stevenson. What we are asking you is to recognize the narrowness of these holdings, that they were talking about a very particular factual situation where you have an individual that was engaging in behavior that, whether or not it violated the statute, was very dependent on the circumstances in which it was committed. And when you're dealing with a situation where uh, you don't necessarily obviously and without further information meet that uh, that public or in the presence of others uh, element, that there may need to be some additional guidance to the jury. But we're not asking you to completely upend Peerian Stevenson, but uh, look at the, and acknowledge the narrowness of their holdings and acknowledge that they um, fit those factual scenarios very closely, but that that they did not create uh, a specific intent environment or or element where one was clearly not anticipated or intended by the legislature. What
3: what other words do you think would have to be added in the context where it wasn't in public or in the presence of others? You just said there might be a, a gloss that the jury would have to get. In that situation?
5: Well, it seems that the guidance from Perry and Stevenson, what it does do is uh, have a situation where it's it's a gray area. Um, it's not, you're not talking about a situation that occurred in a closed house with all the, the blinds drawn when nobody could have possibly seen it, but you're also not talking about a situation on the public sidewalk. So that what constitutes public or what constitutes in the presence of others uh, is what Peary seems to narrow down. And just a recognition that that is the purpose of Peary and Stevenson and not to create a specific intent
3: element, uh, which is far too broad a reading. Well, what would someone have to prove? What would that jury instruction look like? That So you're in your house, the blinds are up, to, to commit the crime... You know, for for instance, in period, they said, you know, maybe waving or whistling to attract attention. So, what does that behavior then tell us if that's an element of the crime? Doesn't that tell us that somehow it has to be a thought that someone is going to see me doing this? I want someone to see me doing this.
5: Well, that's the circumstances under which it's a violation of the statute, is that either um, it's obvious that someone will see you or you're doing it in such circumstances that you perhaps hope that someone will see you, but it's still, will, is it likely that someone will see you? And I think likely to be observed would be an appropriate language for that. Any further questions? Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Bond, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal.
6: Ms. Bond, would that be enough? If we were? If we disagree with you, would it be enough for us to um, hold that Peary and Stevenson should be read more narrowly and to, to kind of cabinet in the way that um, that uh, council is suggesting? Would that be enough, do you think?
0: Well, enough, enough to ensure
6: clarity and to... Um,
0: Well, I I would say no. I mean, even if we take it out of the context of, you know, whether or not my client should get a new trial and just the more general notion of is there some confusion in the law, I would say absolutely yes. And this case is a good example of it where, you know, everyone had read Peary and read the statute and no, and there was a significant disagreement on whether, what kind of an intent was required and, you know so yes should there be some clarity yes um i think the jig should read differently uh, i think that this court should reaffirm that the conduct under the indecent exposure statute requires a specific intent and if if the court would rather go in the way of that requires a deliberate intent to be seen that's fine. Um, either way, that is still a specific intent. And so, yes, I think there does need to be some clarity here. I don't know how you get clarity in the law without some kind of a holding that says this conduct, because of what we know the common law said, because this, these notions, the behavior that we're talking about in the statute, in order to be lewd, in order to be lascivious, in order to be indecent, connotes some sort of, I am engaging in this this conduct that the statute describes in a variety of ways, and it has to have some component of, I want to be seen. Right, that's that's what brings it out of the realm of purely private conduct and into something that the state can criminalize. And I don't know how the court can do that in a way that pro- would provide sufficient clarity and guidance without having a very nice, clear rule like we already have in the case law.
3: Um, so, can I can I ask you uh, after Peary? I th- my understanding is at the time of Peary, that language about that there's an element of the crime that it has to be in public or in the presence of others didn't exist, and that was added subsequent to Peary. So does that, it seems like that's one of the arguments that the state is making that that the fact that that is now an element of the crime that it just has to be in public in the presence of others. Does that change kind of how we should view Peary?
0: So the statutory question is that at the time, the statute in effect at the time of Peary did have that in public or the presence of others, but only connected it to the language of exposure. Um, So that was in the statute in 1946 and 47, but it wasn't set out the way our current statute is, as an independent element that applies to all prongs of the conduct that's being criminalized. So in 1947, that public, um, or in the presence of others, only applied to a willful and lewd exposure. Now the statute, and the statute importantly, to answer the other question at the time of Stevenson, though, that, that public or in the presence of others was a standalone element that applies to all three prongs. Um, so the fact that that's how the statute was written at the time of Stevenson, and the fact that Stevenson very strongly reaffirmed and relied on that broad language of Peary in a case that was not so private, right? not so private as in a home. Um, and the legislature has never altered any of that um you know i point out in my brief that really the concept of stare decisis operates with some particular strength in the area of statutory interpretation. Uh, The legislature, we know, uh, knows about this court's holding in Peary and Stevenson, was amending the statute in the 1980s to include the breastfeeding exception, and chose not to in any way disagree or change the language of the statute to clarify either that there's no deliberate intent or that that deliberate intent only applies to the lewd exposures under those first parentheses. So I think the language of the statute fully supports my position, Um, again, the, the public nature or in the presence of others is a separate question from was it lewd? Right, that is, that is the preliminary question for this offense is, did it occur in public or in a place where others might witness it? And then we have these three kinds of behavior, these three kinds of acts that might or might not, given the nature of the conduct we're talking about, constitute a crime. And what makes them criminal is if they are lewd. And how we know they are lewd or lascivious or indecent is if the defendant did them with a certain intent. Uh, and that is very important, given the kind of conduct that we're talking about.
6: Ms. Pond, how do you respond to the argument uh, from Ms Saunders that, well, here he he testified he didn't have any intent whatsoever. He doesn't remember it.
0: well, I, I, I respectfully, I think that's slicing it a little too fine. I'm not sure of any support in the law that says that that says that's relevant and that there is some difference between, I was, you know, I was so under the effect of an intoxicating substance that I don't remember what I was doing and I didn't intend to do anything. That's the same thing as saying I was so under the effect of an intoxicating substance that I could not, I was not capable of forming the required intent here. Uh, And so I think I don't see that as anything that is a problem in the case. And I, I disagree with this. Um, this, the, you know, the state's argument on that point really depends on um, the defendant's testimony. And my position is that is not entirely the correct point in time that this court should be looking at whether that my client was entitled to a voluntary intoxication instruction. At the time the court ruled, if we look there, I think there's no question Right, that those, those two, those second and third prongs of whether you're entitled to an instruction had been met. There's no question that every witness and all the state's evidence in this case supported certainly a finding by a preponderance of the evidence in the light most favorable uh, that the client, my client, was in fact under the influence of an intoxicating substance. Defendant doesn't need to testify, right, even, in, even when he's asking for a voluntary intoxication instruction. So the fact that then he testified not guarding, not having gotten his instruction, and chose to testify to present his version of events, that just he, his testimony is consistent with the fact that he voluntarily ingested a substance, and then that had such an effect on his capabilities and his sensibilities that he was unable to form the required intent in this case. Um, One that you know the the word volitional um, gets sort of talked about a certain amount. Um, I I actually would urge the court that I think volitional is actually a separate question from general intent or specific intent. That's how I read Fleck, right? Is Fleck says we've got you know an offense could be general or specific. You have to maybe intentionally intend to do the act that constitutes the crime. Or maybe you also have to do something different, which is form a specific intent over and above that to achieve a result. But in either case, Flex says, the conduct has to be volitional. And when we're talking about volitional, we're talking about the product of free will, right? That's all we're talking about. So I actually think that at some points in this case and in the case law, the use of the word volitional has caused some confusion. There is no question in Peary and in Stevenson and in this case right, that the conduct is happening as a result of free will. No one is, you know, that's true. Um, that's not the question. The question is, what is the required intent under the statute? And that's the specific versus general question. So I think the, the volitional, it gets and kind of lost. in.
7: Excuse me, does the word um, engages tell us anything about the intent?
0: Um... You know, I would, I guess, no, I don't, I'm not sure that I uh, think that it does. Um, engages, you know, for me is, to engage is to, is to do is to do something. I read it more as an act. Um, to choose
7: to do something, because I, I sort of have that, that sense of the word that when you engage with something, you're choosing to do it.
0: It it could be, um, you know, I I one of the ways I make sense of the different language in the third provision, um, for instance, the absence of the word willful um, is that because of the way the conduct is described in that third provision, engages in open or gross, um, we're going to presume that it is intentional in the sense of that's why we don't need the word willful that's in the first. Subdivision or the first provision. There, we're just talking about exposure. That might be accidental. I think we can sort of assume that the conduct we're talking about in the third subdivision or the third provision there, you know, because of its nature, because of the way it's described, it is not accidental conduct. Uh, that does not mean that it is always done with the intent to be lewd. Whether it's done with the intent to be lewd or not depends on. Uh, again, this kind of other facts and circumstances that we see in Peary and Stevenson. And those factors apply and help the jury, the fact finder, determine whether the intent has been met and was possessed at the time. But the presence of those factors and the presence of the intent does not turn on the location of the conduct. Thank you, counsel. Thank you.
5: Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted.
2: We'll issue an opinion in due course.